The Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron and Ewan Levick. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode, we'll be chatting with Jim McDowell, Group CEO, and Beck Humble, Group Chief Strategy and Corporate Affairs at Nova Group, about the challenges and opportunities to the defence industry in 2022. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. Hi there. Ewan, I'm going to throw to you to kick things off. Yeah, so look, I think we'll just start with um, the geopolitical angle or the geopolitical considerations for defence at the moment. And obviously, Quite a lot of people, Peter Dutton included, but um, a lot of people are observing that Australia is grappling with a regional environment that's more complex and less predictable than any time since the Second World War. Do you agree with that assessment? Um, And if so, what does that mean for Nova Group? I think you can't not agree with that assessment. So we've come from a a unipolar um, world since the fall of the Berlin Wall with the United States being the guarantor of um, of peace and security in our region, in the Indo-Pacific, indeed in, in, in the world. And that is now being challenged by by China in our region and, and indeed elsewhere. So we find ourselves for the first time with our, our major security partner and our major economic partner not seeing eye to eye and we've got to figure out how to deal with that and diplomats and and policy people need to figure out how how do you continue to to function the way we have since the fall of the berlin wall in an environment in a geopolitical environment in the region that's completely different than anything we have experienced in the past and I'd, I'd agree with the Minister's and Jim's observations in that regard. And I think we've got political tensions, you know, economic uncertainty, a worsening security environment. All of these things are factors that contribute to the worsening threat environment. And I think as a result, we're seeing nations, you know, increase defence expenditure as a percentage of GDP in order to respond. Um, and, and Australia is, is part and parcel of that. You know, the previously committed 2% of GDP for defence defence expenditure is forecast to to increase. Um, and as Jim said, you know, the, the near-term or, or near-region threat was something that was highlighted in last year's defence strategic update. Um, and it highlighted Australia's uh, move from a purely defensive strategy. And it also did away with the assumption that we've had around a 10-year warning period because of the security situation that we find ourselves faced with. It certainly is changing, and uh, and given all that you've just said, how do you read the uh, geopolitical future? Uh, what considerations do you think we need to keep an eye on during 2022 from a national security perspective? So I think you have, you know, a nightmare scenario where um, where, where where China just tries by force to exert its claims on on Taiwan, which is the most likely flashpoint in the in the in the region, and. Um, I would think that would be a pretty low percentage opportunity and you would see much more likely, I think, to say an escalation of non-traditional warfare or asymmetric warfare, particularly in economic terms and cyber terms. So there's a quite a, I think there's quite a way to go before you wind up in a, in a shooting war between two two major powers. And then we see, you know, the United States 
giving a much more clear guarantee to Taiwan than actually it's in their policies or their treaties, very recently from President Biden, which if you were a, a sort of a historian, a conspiracy historian, you could you could you could equate quite easily to the guarantees that Britain and France gave to Poland after they got themselves embarrassed by Munich in the just before the Second World War and effectively you could argue overcommitted themselves to Poland, and that well, that is what started the Second World War as a as a as a world war. So there are there are those traditional paths to war, and there will, but I suspect there will be asymmetric and um, other cyber and economic types of of warfare, if you want to call them. If we you know to say if we go back to Clausewitz and say that war is simply the, you know the extension of of, of politics by another means. Very much so. And I think if I could add to that, Jim, I think also because the economic and societal impacts of the pandemic are yet to fully play out and be understood, we're going to have to expect, you know, significant and ongoing disruption for the foreseeable future. And and what are the sorts of things we're seeing? You know, we're seeing growing nationalistic sentiment emerge off the back of the disruptions to the supply chains, you know. Allied nations are looking to shore up their domestic industrial capability. Um, and, and we're seeing sort of investment in, in new and enhanced capabilities like AI, hypersonics and cyber to counter, to counter the threat. We're seeing enhanced, you know, or new security alliances to augment the traditional ones that we have had. Um, and we're also seeing an acceleration in digital transformation efforts. Now, that was always happening even pre-pandemic, but it certainly increased with pace. And then governments and businesses alike are having to invest significantly to counter that threat in terms of increased cyber attacks or misinformation, ransomware and the like. So I think foreseeable disruption uh, in the future. Yeah, and you can also have the United, you know, the United States is now saying that it can no longer, its policy for many, many years, it could fight two regional wars at the same time. Um, it's now clearly saying it can't fight two regional wars at the same time. It might be able to fight one and a half, um, but I'm not sure how you fight half a war. And uh, if you look at Europe at, at the moment and I don't know how close China and Russia are or whether they'll ever be able to get this sort of act together. But, you know, if there's a major conflict in the in the street in the Formosa, in the Taiwan Straits, and the United States has guaranteed their uh, Taiwan sovereignty, then is that is that the time for uh, for Russia to be doing something in the Crimea or in the Ukraine? And there you've got your two regional conflicts. Uh, and what do you do about them? How does all this influence uh, Nova Group? I mean, you're, you're painting, obviously, a pretty turbulent picture, and I, rightly so, because, as we've said, things are turbulent, and that's what people are agreeing on. But how does how does your assessment of the geopolitical tea leaves influence Nova Group? Well, I think a couple of things. One, it's clear that the defence budgets aren't going to get any smaller um, quickly. So how can and the biggest single restraint to delivering the increased budget commitments is not the money, it's the people. So how do we manage workforce? How do we together collectively as a nation and as as, as a series of allies manage manage workforce in order to produce the effect that the effect that we want? So both the goods, material, advice, and so on. And 
our particular part of the part of the supply chain is has been has been anchored in test and evaluation certification and systems assurance for a very long time. And you know, if we don't get that bit right at the front end, the chance of you and you see them getting it wrong all the time, and it's one of the major reasons why these large programs go off track, is because you haven't assessed the risk, the development risk, the planning at the front end of the program. So I think it it brings home to us more more readily now the importance of that test evaluation certification and systems assurance and the ability to have that as a sovereign capability as something that is controlled by Australia both in how you do it and in how you deploy it so taking what we've all just said you've mentioned cyber a couple of times both of you in there so when we think about national security, we're often looking at the warships, the aircraft and all the big stuff and the, the boots on the ground and so on. But as you've rightly said, cyber is becoming a, a big thing. It's happening. It's that that grey warfare that's going on all the time and many people just wouldn't even know it was happening. So has Australia put our defences in the right place? Are we well positioned to continue and to protect on the cyber front? Well, just uh, when you talk about ships and submarines and combat aircraft, what what they are is a way of getting a lots of zeros and ones around the world, uh, underwater, above water, in the air, very quickly, well protected, stealthily, and all of that. But in the end, their their effectiveness, their efficiency, and their effectiveness is driven by their computing power, and then inevitably their ability to del- to deliver kinetic effect. You know, which is a very polite way of saying a big missile or something like that, or a torpedo. So cyber, the, the, the protection of the big of the large platforms is also a cyber issue, uh, and it's one of the, you know, one of the, the the changes that we've seen through the years in the in the in the requirements for everything that we do now needs to be cyber hardened and cyber protected. So. You know, and if you've ever worked in a business where you have a bloke who runs your cyber or a girl who runs your cyber, then according to them, they can never spend enough money to to protect you. But there is no doubt to me now that that this country is much more focused on its uh, cyber protection, both of its platforms and of its networks. And when we're talking about ASIM, you know, if I if I was going to be an aggressor to to Australia, the first thing I might well do is interfere with its water supply. Do you know? You know, just I a cyber attack upon upon its its water supply or its power supply or whatever supply it is. So we we would better, and I think we are spending quite a lot of time and money with regard to to cyber hardening and cyber protection. And I think also that was something that was highlighted in last year's, um, you know, defence strategy update. Again, it's that a whole of government type approach is required to deal with these unconventional threats, you know, that potentially impact all aspects of society, as Jim just mentioned. So, and it could so so it could be just a hoodie, you know, in his backyard in Parramatta, who think who's you know who's really smart and understands how to cause you difficulty. It could be a ransomware attack from. These buildings full of people in Russia who—that's who, what they do all day. You know, it could be a state actor. It could be any of these things. So it's a very, very difficult threat to to counter at all of its levels. I'm just going to change tack slightly to the topic of sovereignty, um, which, as you've also mentioned in the previous discussion, 
Sovereignty is a concept we talk about a lot on this podcast and you hear a lot of people saying there's Australian industry content, there's Australian industry capability, those are two different things. What what does it mean to Nova Group? What does sovereignty mean to Nova Group? So as you say, if you ask anyone to define sovereignty, they'll define it so they're in it. <laughs> so yeah, so that, so that they are sovereign. Now, and and some people define it as jobs and some people define it as IP and some whichever way you define it, Nova is in it. Right? So sovereignty means control. It's a really easy word. You look it up in the dictionary, it means control. So what do you have control over? Now there's oh you can't have control over everything. But I would suggest that uh, in order to exercise sovereign control and total sovereign control, you need a business that is Australian, that is registered here, that its shareholders are here, that its decision-making, particularly on discretionary money, on IP, is here, uh, and that this is your market, that this Australia is your is not maybe not everything to you, but certainly most things to you. And, and, and look, there's a place for everybody in this in this sovereign argument. But if you want real, true sovereignty, it's Australian-owned, Australian-funded, decisions are made in Australia. Any piece of equipment or advice or plans or whatever you're buying from Nova, the Australian government has the right to deploy that whenever and wherever it wants unlike if you buy a missile from, say, the United States, unlike you buy where there will be sovereign, they will have sovereign control over what it is they've sold you and what they want you to do with it. So, and it may be very good, it may be privileged access, but it's not sovereignty, and it's not control. And that's why the US, the UK, France, say all these big defense economies have mechanisms by which they maintain sovereign control of their national security industrial architecture. And that's it, Jim. You've worked in those countries, as have I, and it's not a sovereignty is not a new concept, is it? It's something that all nations look to adopt to shore up their national interests. Um, and, and as Jim said, it's not every single capability. It's those critical capabilities that we need to secure the defence of Australia, like test and evaluation. So if you look at the United States, the freest economy in the world, you know, ha ha. You, you, you've got the Buy America Act, you've got the ITAR, you've got the export controls, you've got the small business set aside, you've got the ethnic set aside, you've got the backbench committees of Congress who do authorize and appropriate all of the defense funds, which is, these are huge checks and balances on, on, on the, uh, to keep the defense economy sovereign. Go to France, they solve the problem a different way. So they become the buyer and the seller in every transaction. So the French government owns all of the major, owns most or all of all of the major defence suppliers. That's it's a, it's a, it's a that, that's one way to solve it. You go to the UK, um, you know have these very long term partnering agreements that with 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 local businesses with BAE or with whoever it happens to be. They they let they let BAE be formed first of all. You know, to have this huge national champion, this behemoth who dwarfs everything. And I was there at the time whenever the discussions were going on about who, what we were going to do, who we were going to merge with. Was it going to be Deutsche Aerospace, who were the who were the favourites at that time, or was it going to be GEC Marconi? And in the end, politically, geopolitically, and for sovereign reasons, it was clear that we had to do the deal with GEC Marconi and build a truly sovereign national champion 
in the UK. So you've talked about the American approach, the French, the UK with BAE. So what more can be done in practical terms to boost and accelerate Australian sovereignty? Should we be adopting the same kind of measures? And But how should we be doing them in our own particular manner? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we've we've had policy like other nations to support the development of sovereign capability. And I think particularly, you know, uh, there's been an ongoing discussion and dialogue, but now is the time to turn that long-held policy into tangible action. And I think I think we're ready for it, particularly off the back of the recent experience over the last 18 months or so with the disruptions to the supply chains. It's only served to elevate that conversation and the criticality for it. Um, so I, I think to your point, Grant, you know, Australia's security circumstances are unique to Australia. So it might well be that how other countries do it is not as applicable for us here, but we need to come up with what, what works for us. It's not every capability, but it's those critical capabilities um, for our national security interest and some of those we've already talked through. Yeah, so we have some decent policy, but we now have to and I have to convert the policy into action. So, you know, you've got 10 sovereign industrial capability priorities, well, 14 now, but we haven't really defined the last four. So look at those and look at each of them and say, what control do we have over over naval shipbuilding? I would suggest we have, we have privileged access and that the, 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 the ultimate design is with the ship designers, whether it be BAE or Lurson or whoever it is. If we look at... Um, the continuous submarine program, you know that there's 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 a situation where where it's very unclear as to how we're going to come out of that, but hopefully in the next eighteen months we'll find out. If you look at armored vehicles, that is mostly supplied good good AIC program, but mostly supplied out of out of Germany these days, and yeah, and the, and the United States. So, which of the how how much are we able to spend to get as much sovereignty as we can in each of these verticals? And then you've got one horizontal, which is called test and evaluation, certification, and systems assurance, that runs all the way through, runs all the way through each of those verticals and all the way through the life cycle in each of those verticals. So it's both ubiquitous and enduring, and we could still control that. Nova is still the biggest player in that in that space. So we have a we have, we need to find a way to turn that policy into practice that that doesn't cede that that capability the way we've done in some of the other ones. So I'll, you know I'm saying that obviously from a Nova standpoint, but it's just we didn't make it. We you know it was the it was the government who said this was a sick pea. We didn't say it was a sick pea. And what we're saying is here's a way you might be able to protect that. And the UK does it. So the UK gives Kinetic a long-term partnering agreement for 25 years, which allows it to invest, which allows it to do, you know. We instead say we just invite all comers to come in and, and you know, we'll buy the cheapest pencil. And I think that's probably been shown to be not the way we need to secure our supply chains and secure our sovereignties in the current geopolitical environment post-COVID and what we know happens to supply chains during those sorts of events. Back towards the beginning of this conversation, I asked you, you know, how your assessment of the geopolitical tea leaves affected uh, the direction of Nova Group and your answer had to do with the largest challenge being the workforce. I just want to come back to that. What is Nova Group doing to address the workforce challenge? 
So, you know, there's a number of things you can do. You can obviously, you can, you can skill people better. You can train them up. You can, you, you used to be able to import them. Uh, and, and presumably, again, we'll be able to import some uh, some expertise who want to come and live in Australia, which is a great place to live. You know, if you compare it to a pandemic, you know, in the UK or, 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 or Europe. But at the moment, that tap's been turned off. It's been turned off for two years now. So what we'll have to do is immediately what we have to do, and it's the last thing anybody thinks of, is use the resources that we have much better, much more smartly. You know, rather than just pushing the price up by having, you know, just everyone competing with everybody else for a scarce resource, which is which is labor. You know, it's the same as any other market, the labor market. It will push you'll just keep pushing the price up. And when you've only got one buyer's defense, they're they're effectively pushing the price up against themselves. So how do you use your workforce better? How, I mean, we've done quite a lot of that during COVID. Most people worked from home for quite a long time, right? Most people are are accustomed to being more flexible certainly need to do more of that and we need to figure out um as we did whenever we did whenever we changed for sustainment from the the military to, to industry that we're both not doing the same thing on both sides of the contract that we'll have these dark dark black lines of above and below that frankly don't exist anywhere else in the world and is a very very big constraint on the use of your workforce. So all of those things need to be done. And then whenever the borders open again and so we can bring smart people in, we can train them better, we're going to have relationships with the universities. You know, we can we can commercialize ideas much better than we currently do. You know, we are 27th of 28 in OECD for translation of research into uh, uh, into actual product or into capability in our case for the armed forces. So those are the areas, but immediately immediately we need to use the current workforce smarter. And I think it is about that ability to be agile and flexible, all those words that everyone's been using, you know, post-pandemic. Um, but industry and government, you know, that we all adopted responsive models during the pandemic and it's about how can we continue with those because it will be those entities, you know, that that uh, are quick to adapt and can remain at the forefront that will, you know, be best placed to emerge from this. And, uh, yeah, building the workforce is another major challenge, I would imagine. So uh, building the workforce, adapting to life post-COVID, you've mentioned, Jim, the, the changes, people are now more flexible and the importance of keeping that going. So as COVID is becoming accepted and we're seeing coming out of some phases and possibly going into new ones and so on. Uh, there's lots of challenges coming from that. It's all different to many of them. So where does Nova see itself beginning and, and is there a right, right way to move forward in, in this yeah. transition? Um, I think we are about to enter into what's probably going to be the most disruptive phase of COVID for, for Australia. You know, we haven't really had our pandemic yet. You know, Europe and the United States and everybody else has had theirs. We're now, you know, we have, through the success of controlling the disease, uh, we have had, even in what we consider to be relatively high numbers in Victoria or in New South Wales, are relatively low, low numbers in Europe or in the United States. So we are now going to have to accept that people are going to get sick. And most of them won't get very sick, but some of them will. And some of them will get, you know, will be have to stay off work for three or four days, and some of them will be much longer than that, and someone will be, you know, some people will die. Uh, so we're gonna, we that's this for this first half of 2022. That's what it's gonna be. 
it's going to be our our pandemic, and we'll have to figure out how to deal with that as 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 we go through it, as the other nations have. There's no, there won't. I don't think there'll be any right and wrong way once we're kind of we're living with the thing, and hopefully it's become more like you know flu for most people, but with the vaccination status and so on. Then I think we'll be in a try it and see. You know, we'll start off by saying, okay, you know, and it depends what industry you're in. We're quite lucky at the moment because we're in mostly a professional services business and you can do that from nearly anywhere. It's really, really hard to build a frigate in your backyard, right? So so depending, you know, what the industry is, then the, the, the degree of flexibility and the degree of uh, uh, people have to just be there will be, and 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 I suspect also from a Nova point of view, you know, we pride ourselves in, in our culture, in being a big family, you know, sort of big enough to matter, small enough to care, sort of thing, and and that and that, in order to do that, you need human interaction, so you've got to keep that going somehow. And I only I only joined the business less than a year ago, so I've hardly been able to sort of interact other than virtually. I had about an eight week period where I got out and about quite a lot. So how do you mix all of that up? And a lot of it will be suck it and see. You know, let's we know what we know. We have to be more flexible. So is it do we expect people in two days a week or three days? It doesn't matter, but they've got to be in at least five times a year. And we're going to have events and we're going to do all of that stuff. Is what we're working our way through. And Beck, did you want to build on that? No, I just think Jim said it all. It's, it's flexibility is the key, and those responsive models and how we adapt in a in a timely and real time way is, is going to be going to be critical. Well, well, building on that, you're talking flexibility and things like that, and I think one of the things, uh, as Jim was saying, people are going to get sick. Some will be off long. We may have long COVID, reducing people's effectiveness. So. It's a new area. It's something we've never really done. But I think from my perspective, it may be highlighting the key aspects, key resources and handover, takeover and not having single points of failure. Uh, is, is Nova, are you able to talk about how Nova's addressing that aspect? Yeah, look, I really had to do it during the pandemic. You know, at the start, you had to figure out, you know, that you wouldn't have all your teams in the in the place at the same time. And and in the end, it didn't really matter that much for us, but it, it could have done. So all that business continuity stuff, I think, is pretty well practiced now. Um, albeit, albeit that we kind of inflicted it upon ourselves rather than had the pandemic inflicted on us at that time. Well, thanks, Jim, and thanks, Beck. Uh, it's been really great having you on the show. And, of course, thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed what you've been listening to, you can tell a colleague about this episode so that they can benefit from it too. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back in the not-too-distant future with another informative episode. The ADM Podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a YEFA media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.